The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in this week's podcast, we look at the extraordinary show of portrait miniatures at London's National Portrait Gallery and explore the history of these gem-like images. But first this week, Anthony Gormley. In the coming months, the British sculptor will unveil two projects in which he engages in a dialogue with historical and even ancient art and architecture. Next week, Essere opens at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. It features an exhibition of Gormley's sculpture in its ground floor galleries, but also three instances in which Gormley engages directly with the Uffizi's collection and its setting within the Tuscan city. One of Gormley's body forms, the iron sculptures cast from his own body that are his best-known works, stands close to the classical works on the Uffizi's Piano Nobile, while another figure is on the gallery's terrace looking out over the Piazza della Signoria. Perhaps most dramatically, Gormley's settlement, one of his so-called block works, a deconstructed figure formed from jostling cuboids, is positioned directly alongside the sleeping hermaphrodite, a Roman copy from a 2nd century BCE Greek sculpture. Then, in May this year, he'll bring 29 body forms to Delos, the unpopulated Greek island. I went to Gormley's London studio to talk to him about these momentous projects. Anthony, can you tell me what it feels like to know that your work is going to be in the Uffizi Gallery? Well, obviously, it's it's daunting and exciting at the same moment. Um, no, what an... What an extraordinary gallery uh, and what an extraordinary architectural context to have for art. Uh, I mean, it's not just what the building contains, it's actually the building itself and the way that those courtyard galleries filled with light, um, they, I don't know, it it lifts your spirits. I mean, I just think, you know, Florence is one of those cities in which the sharing of art is absolutely like built into the nature of the town and nowhere is it more uh, concentrated in a singular bin- building than in New Fitzy. So it's, it's an amazing thing. I've always said everything you make is of its nature going to have a conversation with everything that has already been made. But actually, to realise that, to ha- you know, to 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 put works in the context of a gallery that starts with, you know, Greek works made in the fourth century BC, and then goes on, uh, you know, to the great years of the Renaissance and beyond. I mean, the Caravaggio and Artemisa Gentileschi's are amazing works there, as are the Pontormos. But of course, you've got Michelangelo and Leonardo and Botticelli. Um, which Eike Schmidt, the incredibly dynamic new director, who's not staying because he's going on to the Kunsthistorisches in Vienna, um, has done to reactivate those amazing collections. The experience of looking along that second floor uh, internal corridor with light flowing in uh, from the riverside and just seeing this progress of Roman portrait busts and then at the end the Bandinelli copy of the Laocoon it's just one of the great moments I think it's, it, it, you know, it, 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 it allows you to think 
how, in a sense, this process of reflection, which is what art is, I think, art is a reflection on being, um, how, how long it's been going on and how sophisticated it has increasingly become. Did you straight away uh, decide that you wanted certain dialogues, but also a bit of distance in the sense that you've got there's there's a there's a room in which it's just Anthony Gormley sculptures, and then there are two or three engagements directly with the collection. Was that a sort of post process of to and fro in your mind about how much you wanted a direct engagement? It was just wonderful because it was so organic and so quick. Um, we. The, this um, special space downstairs, uh, I think it's called the Magibeciana uh, Room. I haven't pronounced that right, but anyway, I think it was the old stables. It was old Medici stables. And that's been only very recently converted into a, a gallery space. And it has been used for historic exhibitions. So the last show there was the Codex um, of Leonardo. And on the whole, they closed all of the windows. It was a very, it was a very dark space that depended on artificial illumination, often of drawings. And it's just been magical to open that up. But anyway, that is a defined space, very much at the back of the Uffizi, that you access, having gone through the quite extensive library and, yeah postcard selling bits of the of the museum and it was very important i think to both uh Ica and 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 i that there was a connection made and we and we and we did it very very quickly uh i we we spent an afternoon and he he we were just walking past the the hermaphrodite the second century um yeah greek amazing sexy sculpture um, and he said oh we're going to have to move that because um, we're doing works in this staircase and I said well where are you going to move it to uh, anyway very very quickly his, work, his, his mind and mine were working together can, can we put it somewhere on its own where I can have a dialogue and that, 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 that was a it was just very very quick we found the room and we realised that the best thing was to leave the room completely empty. We, we've just recently repainted it the same deep uh, 18th century red that you might find in a salon hang. Um, and it will sit on a plinth. And I knew immediately, I knew immediately what work should go with it. And we've paired it with Settlement, which is a stainless steel block work in which the blocks have been as it were separated from each other so this is this is a an image of a prone figure that lies on its front but it's actually a meditation on if you like aggregation and entropy the idea of the body as a as a place of transformation but my transformation is to do with matter and space now next to this extraordinary sensual uh, other idea about transformation that, that, that has particular pertinence to our time where us testing, as it were, 
genetic sexuality against, as it were, a culturally uh, de defined sexuality or the idea of uh, the transformation of your birth sex into the, the, the sex that you feel you are. It, it's amazing that, that this ancient work has such pertinence today and I'm the one who's now putting, as it were, mortality into contrast with sexuality. Um, and my work sits directly, lies directly on the floor. I thought it was, it was striking that you chose one of the blocks, because you've done a lot of reclining figures. There's a number of works that in different ways would have corresponded with that. But it was a block work that you chose. And, that, and uh, in a way... Uh, in terms of its language, you might argue it's it's one of the works which is most different to the hermaphrodite. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was very conscious. I wanted to make something that had this hard, cool, geometric, industrial uh, feel. Uh, and I guess to to think about all the metaphors that we can think of as the body, of, of the, uh, yeah, applying to the body. So the, the body as uh, a mansion of many chambers, the body poten potentially seen as a city, uh, a city of uh, interconnected but distinguished, uh, distinguishable, uh, singular, uh, cells um, and then I think thinking of sculpture's relationship to mortuary and memorial sculpture so putting the, the hermaphrodite that in a, in a way talk, talks about desire and human sexuality and its, and its an enormous kind of transformative potential next to, I think, something that is dealing with human jeopardy, with, with the, the, in a way, the breakdown of the body, but then also seeing that the body's aggregation and the social aggregation of a community has a certain relationship. And whether people get these ideas, I mean, doesn't matter. I think, I think what, what excites me is that I've done something that is very unusual in the way that I normally show the work. It's very dramatic. There's a single, single light source above the two works. They're in otherwise a relatively dark room. It's extremely theatrical. Uh, but I hope that its visual effect uh, will also cause some kind of um, contemplative uh, yeah, questioning in, in the viewer. And we've turned the hermaphrodite round. They normally are shown with the buttocks and the face facing towards you, and I've turned her around so that actually you see the thighs and the penis first, and then you turn around and see uh, the buttocks and the head. So the two works actually face away from each other while lying quite close. They're, they're about 70 centimetres apart. And I guess I want people to come in and circulate around this uh, 
luminous island made out of these two works, one of which is elevated and the other is on the floor. Uh, and I guess that will be the first work that people see in the show. And I guess it presents my proposition, which is, can the body be brought back into art in terms of a place of reflexivity rather than a place of narrative or representation or symbolic uh, presentation. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, yeah, my hope is that this is, a good, this is a good initiation to then things that are in the show later on. One of the aspects of shows in which work from today is shown alongside the art of the past is this sort of rupture of languages. And I think the shows that do it best are the ones that acknowledge that rupture. Were you conscious of this idea of a language after modernism coming into conflict with or abutting the language of before modernism? Well, I think that, you know, the, the, the context of Florence generally and the contribution that the Medici family made to the evolution of probably, you know, the most vibrant and influential single moment in Western art history was ex extraordinary. Um, but it's based, um, you know, if you read Pico de la Mirandola's uh, verses on the perfectibility of man, it was very much based on this humanist principle, uh, neoplatonist humanist principle, that, that, that the human project was perfectible. Uh, and I think the um, that that continues to interest me. I, I did a show four years ago in the Forte Belvedere, which which really I guess questions. Um, I mean, I, I I grew up with you know, the dialectics of enlightenment, so so um, Horkheimer and Adorno are very close to my heart. How, in a sense. Uh, have we betrayed the promises of the Enlightenment that somehow through rationality, uh, through empiricism, through, in a way, the evolution of human mental capability, we were going to come to a balanced world? Well, that, that just hasn't happened. So um, I guess for me, while there remains, I, I don't know, just plangent beauty and extraordinary extraordinary inspiration in the work of uh, yeah, Botticelli or uh, Leonardo uh, I think that our time the time when we have to be less confident about the human project it's, it's, it's very necessary to make that rupture very very clear and I guess that rupture is introduced very very um, gently and with a bit, a bit of kind of um, eros in in the room with the hermaphrodite. But as 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 the interjections continue, I guess that testing of the Renaissance notion of man as the measure of all things continues, and perhaps it continues most potently 
in the occupation of the uh, of the parapet of the Loggia di Lanzi, where from the point of view of the museum, you look out over the cafe terrace of the Uffizi and you see this body form that yeah, itself looks out towards Brunelleschi's dome, Giotto's tower, and really the city at large, making it clear that this work is not only about having a dialogue with the precious treasures of an extraordinary palazzo and uh, now museum at, at, at the centre of this town associated with the Renaissance, but, but ha- has a relationship with now and a wider world. And then from outside, here is this work that you see almost as a black silhouette against hopefully the blue skies of of Tuscany, um, that reasserts, you could say, a Renaissance trope uh, of man as the measure of all things. But here is a one-to-one indexical body form. And below it, there is Gian Bologna's Rape of the Sabines, Cellini's Perseus and Andromeda, yeah, the the copy of Michelangelo's David Amanati's um, fountain, and suddenly that scale, and the scale by reference of all the other works, uh, comes into question. Anyway, uh, and I guess it's asking again. You know, here is this town in which the 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 sharing the sharing of great works of art in collective space is. It's still an inspiration. It's still completely, uh, you know, uh, well, I think a model of how sculpture in particular doesn't need to be uh, enclosed within an institution, that that somehow it's something that you can live with, that that raises uh, your your spirits, but also invites you to have this imaginative kind of relationship with your with your daily life city location. Uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But anyway, the, this, this, this work um, somehow, hopefully, um, allows you to look at all of those historic works um, in a new way, or, or, or anyway, in, you know, it's, it's a kind of catalyst for you to recognise differences of scale, material, and indeed language, uh, the mythological narrative language of most statuary. It struck me that with that work in particular, that it's, there's always been that tension in those works in the sense that it is a cast from your own body, and yet it is a kind of everyman figure. And especially in Florence, with the kind of conditions that you're talking about, that duality of that work i.e. it's Anthony Gormley looking over uh, over Florence you know r- referring directly to other sculpture and then at the same time it is as you, an everyman figure it seems to me that that's that's added that, that gains an added thrust from from being in that yeah, position it's interesting that thing you know what what uh to what degree is it Anthony Gormley I I guess I I I have always thought well I just want to deal with a bit of matter, an object that 
is the closest to me, and that is a is my body. It's the only object that I happen to in, in, inhabit. I'm not sure that I think of these works in any way as self-portrait. I, 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 I can imagine that it's impossible for people not to think of them that way, but in many senses I just think here is a random example of a human life uh, exposed to the elements, to time, and to the gaze of the multitude. Um, it identifies a particular body, but it is an example of the common human condition of embodiment. And in some senses is, is a displacement. And I guess, you know, for me, yes, here is, here is the subjective truth, an indexical forensic proof of incarnation, in other words, that we do, we do inhabit a body, but that can be imaginatively inhabited by anybody. And that's always been my uh, wager, in a sense, that the body, on, on one hand, it matters enormously that it has the truth of this is a record of a lived moment of human time. But it also has the invitation that it could be anybody, and anybody can imagine themselves there. And I think that is the the, the necessary tension between the things. And I think the, the the fact is that they're unheroic. They're not. They're, they're, they don't. Uh, you know, it's called event horizon. That piece. So it, it's an event on the horizon, <laughs> and 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 it's up to you to make it. It's up to you to make the event. Uh, so it's 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 not in the kind of the 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 terms of uh, uh, Lessing's Laocoon. It it's 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 not a, a a moment, a carefully chosen moment in a narrative sequence. It is simply a moment of time that has, in a sense, through the agency of sculpture, been taken out of time. That then has to be re-engaged with the time of the viewer. Uh, I mean, all of this is very uh, like poncy theoretical stuff, but it is very important to me how how my work, while easily mistaken for a statue, is not a statue because it's not it's not a memorial. It 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 isn't it isn't uh, a a freeze frame in a narrative story. It is not mythological. It is not symbolic. Uh, uh, it, so it's something else. It, it, it's its relationship with the actual, its relationship with the representational, is of a different order. And it's closer to the fossil. You could say these are industrially produced fossils that deal with time. They try to engage the time of the viewer and, in a sense, stop the viewer and allow the viewer to reconsider their own position. And that is, that is the wager. Can you, can you repurpose representation from the duty of telling a story to being reflexive? Here is a human space in space, which is of another, but can I make it mine? And in doing so, what do I discover about my own being?
You could say, my God, that's just asking too much of anybody. Um, but that's my hope, um, that in a way, all of these interventions, you could say, whether it's in the gallery or, or in, in the collective space of a city, are an invitation to stop and look and reflect on, in a way, being in time and space. The show that's purely of your own work, this dedicated space for your own work, has at its heart two architectural pieces, one from 1980 and one from very recently. Why did you want to set up that dialogue between those pieces? What was it that they said? What is it that they're saying to each other, if you like? I think they are just asking that question, you know, what is the space of a human life? Um, and I think they both, they both invite in a different way the kind of imaginative inhabitation that I was just talking about. But Passage, the most recent work, invites actual entering. So what I was talking about, the, the kind of the, the imaginative projection uh, through empathy with you know this body form that is on the on the skyline that interestingly enough is seen as a dark silhouette. Suddenly, that dark silhouette is turned into an architectural form, which is this long tunnel, a forty-foot-long tunnel, that has a dead end, uh, and you can walk around it as an object. Uh, but you're also invited to actually enter the space. And as you do so, you walk into your own shadow and walk towards darkness. Um, you could say you, you are invited to make the event. So your journey into the work, in a sense, is also a journey into yourself and, and, and uh, a confrontation with your own fears. Because as you walk away from the light and into the darkness, you're walking into your own shadow. And some people don't make it to the end. Um, it is a tight fit, uh, certainly. If you, I mean, it was made with my silhouette, um, but uh, you know, it uh, in, 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 for, for, for anybody, there is this feeling that somehow, even though you know what the outside is like, uh, you're going into the unknown. Um, and I guess I wanted to. I guess balance or, or 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 find a foil for that idea of um, I guess an existential an existential experience that that work from 1981 that I showed at the Whitechapel um, seemed like the perfect foil to this existential tunnel as it were which is a it's like a boxing ring but it's 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 using the, the, the pre-existing columns that are there in the Uffizi. Um, there are six of them that make this wonderful uh, vaulted space, each part of it. Um, there, are, there are 12 spaces altogether. Uh, have the feeling of a room, even though you don't need walls. But anyway, we used the four central columns and um, put room up uh, between them. And here is, here is all of my clothes at a certain point in my life, sort of uh, mid-twenties, the last set of clothes that my parents bought for me uh, that are sort of ritually 
ripped into ribbons. I mean, I cut them with a, with a pair of scissors into about eight mil um, ribbons. You likened it to peeling an orange. Yeah, yeah, well, it is a bit like peeling. I mean, I guess, I guess that work, uh, along with bed, was the beginning of my realisation that I wanted to talk about, in a way, life and the place of life and life as a place, as a space. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think that, that, that work, room, was literally the opening up. Is there another way that you can bring the body back into art? By inference. Uh, and anyway, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. There's something, there's something about its delicacy in relation to these massive one metre by one metre Pietro Serena columns that hold up this six and a half metre high vault that make it very, uh, yeah, tender or, or, or uh, here is this arena in which life happens. Lastly, we can't not talk about the fact that you're about to make works on this island Delos. This Greek island, which is uninhabited, but you are going to inhabit it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit of a... That's another extraordinary, um, yeah, uh, daunting... You know, this, this, this island, the centre of the Cyclades, the birthplace of Artemis and Apollo, uh, the extraordinary ritual centre of really the Hellenic world from about 500 BC, the third most sacred site after Olympus and Delphi, uh, here, yeah, I'm 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 the first, <laughs> the first kind of contemporary artist that has been given that kind of scenario to 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 work in. It's fundamentally an archaeological site, right? Yeah, no, no, nobody. Um, they they they. Uh, what what's the right word? They uh, they purified the island in 250 BC. And you're not allowed to die, and you're not allowed to be born on uh, on Delos. The light there is extraordinary, but it's 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 a tiny island. It's 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 a it's a rock in the sea. It's four and a half kilometers long and a kilometer and a quarter deep, um, and it's made of granite and marble. But on the whole, granite. Um, it's, it, there's no trees. There's very little water, but on it were these seven vast uh, shrines to, to Apollo, made by the Naxians, the Parians, the Delians, and the Athenians, who all vied one against the other, who could build the biggest and most grand uh, yeah, shrine to the god of uh, speed and poetry and, uh, and uh, I think, creative intelligence. Anyway, it's a bit. It's a, yeah. No, having said that, it's a bit. It really is daunting. Uh, here, here, am I in a way repopulating this island? There's 20, 29 sculptures over the whole site, and we'll be occupying the the, the grotto of Hercules, Mount Kynthos, uh, the Minoan fountain, uh, the, the the altar close to the lions. Um, by those very tight testicle erect penis columns uh, i mean it's it's an amazing amazing sight um and i guess 
here is another opportunity to think uh, again about, I guess, what 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 art can do and what sculpture can do in terms of becoming a reflexive instrument. Uh, this is very similar to where we began our talk. Um, here, here is a is a, a place that, in a sense, carried the the epicenter of a certain idea about what civilization meant. Um, it may have been based on slavery, uh, but. Uh, it was also capable of extraordinary, extraordinary. I mean, if you think of Praxilites or any of the great uh, sculptors of Periclean times, um, this anyway another idea of what what the body could be uh, a kind of also project. The idea of what is charisma? Charisma comes from the balance of uh, physical and, and, and intellectual potential in the body. Um, and you could say all of those notions, the notions of the agora, uh, the notions of the gymnasium, the notions of the academy, all of them come from that time. And they're, they're, however, how, however critical we have to be in a post-colonial time of the dominance of that Western hegemony on, on that idea of, of, of Greek Hellenic culture, they are still uh, relevant questions now about um, how, how we regard our own existence. And I suppose having that context um, very similar to the, to, the, to the dialogue that you have to have with, with Renaissance ideas about human perfectibility, uh, we, we, we are now going, as it were, not to the rebirth of those ideas, but to their birth. And thinking again about you know, what, is, what is the human project and is it perfectible? I think we have to give up on the on the notion of perfectibility. We have to uh, accept our uh, both our jeopardy and our um, animal nature, and think quite hard about how how culture can, uh, or anyway, art can help us rebalance ourselves in a uh, ever more endangered world. Simply. Through human activity, it's a it's a it's a curious thing. I think I think of this going to Delos as doing the same diagnostic job, you could say, as I'm doing at the Uffizi, which is to say, well, what can art do now, and how can it how can it help us re well recalibrate our own relationship to, to progress, for example. And going back to Delos, it's sort of like g g going back to the roots of an idea about Western hegemony that that you know really need to be recalibrated. And I guess in uh, you know in in the arena, for example, in the in in the great theatre, I've put two two works that might you you might associate. Um, with uh, Greek tragedy, 
but these are the, these are works that talk about human potential, but also talk about that in relation to uh, how our extensive capabilities also become, in some senses, a handicap. This is the same dialogue that I have with the Angel of the North. You could say that this, this meditation on the extension of our capabilities uh, in terms of our tech, in terms of our technology, what has that meant in terms of our relationship to the animal side of our natures? And to what extent does that actually... Well, we can see it. Trump twittering is a denial, in a way, of the responsibility that hopefully everything that democracy and things that we've learned from Greece should be applying, that we should be, each of us as citizens, contributing to, as it were, the evolution of a fairer uh, shared world. And here, through, as it were, the immediacy of universal communication, we have a short-circuiting uh, of those very, I think, important responsibilities to reflect Anthony, thank you so much. Ben, thank you very much. Anthony Gormley, Essere, is at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence from the 26th of February until the 26th of May. Site, his project on Delos, which is presented by the non-profit organisation Neon, opens on the 2nd of May and runs until the 31st of October. And a major Gormley retrospective is at the Royal Academy of Arts in London in the autumn, beginning on the 21st of September and running until the 3rd of December. We'll be back in the wonderful world of portrait miniatures after this. When Auguste Rodin unveiled his statue Age d'Erin, Age of Bronze, at the Paris Salon in 1877, art critics reacted with disbelief. The figure was so lifelike, they initially accused the artist of simply using a cast of his model. The public were less sceptical and the piece was a huge success. Crucially, it led to the commission of La Porte de l'Enfer, also known as the Gates of Hell, the monumental group composition that effectively preoccupied Rodin for the rest of his life. In its Impressionist and Modern Art sale on the 28th of February, Bonhams is offering a cast of the sculpture's own reduction of Age of Bronze. As Bonhams Global Department Head for Impressionist and Modern Art, India Phillips, says, In this work we see Rodin's determination to strip away myth from sculpture and explore the reality of the human body. It's key to our appreciation of sculpture as a medium and remains as powerful now as on the day it was first revealed. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, miniatures are among the most exquisite forms of portraiture, but it's been more than three decades since the UK last had a major show dedicated to them. The National Portrait Gallery in London, which has one of the finest collections of these gems, has just opened Elizabethan Treasures, a show dedicated to the two great artists in this field, Nicholas Hilliard and Isaac Oliver. Elizabeth I and her court are, of course, at the heart of the show, but that title only tells us part of the story. Yes, the Tudors are well represented, but we also see the transition into the Stuarts, with some of the finest portraits made under James I of England, the Jacobean period. It's a stunning show, and I went to the Portrait Gallery to talk to Catherine MacLeod, the exhibition's curator. Catherine, before we start looking at these jewel-like objects, can we set the scene a bit? What, what are miniatures and what were they used for? Well, miniatures really, in a way, were the most um, highly regarded 
flat art form, if you like, uh, in the late 16th and early 17th century in England. And they were also something that English people were tremendously proud of. They knew that they did it better than anyone else. And it, that was known internationally. Um, they're tiny paintings done in watercolour, basically the technique of manuscript illumination, um, watercolour on vellum, and uh, but they're instead of being in books like manuscript illumination, they're they're cut out and they're framed and mounted either in lockets or in special boxes, often turned ivory boxes. Um, and they had a very special role to play in court life uh, and to an extent middle class life, but particularly court life in Elizabethan and Jacobean England. Right, let's move on to looking at the two protagonists of this show, the two painters who paint these wonderful things. Um, Nicholas Hilliard on the one hand and Isaac Oliver, who were they? So Nicholas Hilliard and Isaac Oliver were the two most famous, most celebrated uh, miniaturists of the period, not just nationally but internationally. They were, they, their names were known outside England, which is quite a novel thing in the context of English art at that time. Um, Hilliard, they also represent, one of the things that makes them so interesting, I think, is that they represent the two strands of art in England at that time. Hilliard was a native um, British artist. He came from Devon. Um, he was apprenticed in the way that um, most artists and craftsmen at the time were um, for a, quite a long period to a goldsmith in his case. Um, so he went up through the sort of traditional training processes. He then became a miniaturist. We don't know how he made that jump from goldsmith to miniaturist, uh, but it happened uh, kind of almost immediately that he um, became free of his apprenticeship. Um, but he was basically a native English artist producing miniatures and producing other kinds of art in a very kind of practical context, which was was uh, partly for the Queen and partly for the court. So as well as making miniatures, he designed seals, uh, seals of the realm. He designed medals for the Queen to distribute to her followers. Uh, he did other kinds of goldsmith work. A lot of he turned his hand to a number of of different uh, areas of of art or artisanal work. Oliver, on the other hand, uh, is an immigrant um, from, in his case, from France. His family came to England when Oliver was a small child. They were Huguenot, Protestant Huguenot refugees. And Oliver lived and worked in the immigrant community in London. And that's really important for his art because he had these connections that continued throughout his life with this uh, group of continental artists working in England, and there's a very strong strand of highly skilled immigrant artists working right through the 16th and 17th century in England, bringing in uh, skills and approaches to art from the continent. And Oliver is very much part of that aspect of uh, English art. So we're looking here at some self-portraits, actually. So we've got Hilliard here. Why would he have made a self-portrait? Well, that's actually a very pertinent question at this period because self-portraits are very rare at this period. In fact, there are only two surviving oil self-portraits from the 16th century painted in England. Um, so Hilliard producing a self-portrait is a really interesting, significant thing. I think right from the start, he seems to have felt that he had a, a special place in art, if you like. He He... Um, 
I mean, he was clearly incredibly talented right at the beginning of his career, and this self-portrait's quite early. Um, obviously, painting yourself was a way of getting a free sitter, um, being able to advertise your art. But this self-portrait was painted while he was in France, and it may be that he painted it for his wife, who uh, was in France for part of the time Hilliard was there, but then went home to have a baby, and perhaps it belonged to her. Perhaps it was a gift. I mean, it, it may be that it was one of those miniatures produced for that kind of very personal uh, exchange that miniatures became very associated with. As well as this sort of vivid self-portrait of him, mm. um, it, it, it includes some some writing in gold around around the portrait. What does that tell us? Yes, well, this is very typical of Hilliard's work at this period. It's It's got beautiful um, calligraphic gold inscription around it, which... Uh, tells us what year it was painted and how old he was at the time. Those, that kind of information is often on oil paintings at this time as well. Um, but Hilliard wrote it in this wonderful uh, way that reflects the curving shape of the miniature. The miniature's circular in this case. Hilliard's miniatures at this early stage are nearly always circular, and then they became oval. We think that was partly to do with him going to France in the late six, uh, 1570s um, and seeing oval miniatures in France. Um, and But he continues throughout his career to uh, put these beautiful calligraphic inscriptions in gold around the outside of the miniature. And I think that reflects this close relationship between miniature painting and manuscript illumination where uh, the word and the image are very interrelated and there's a, a real sort of relationship there. And that's very much part of what Hilliard's doing. Also, his paintings have this emphasis on the decorative surface, on the actual surface of the artwork. They're not really trying to create an illusionistic space. And so writing on them doesn't destroy the illusion because there isn't really an illusion. There's, there's a sense of, of flatness and the decorativeness of the surface, which is, which is clearly important to Hilliard and reflects wider English art practices at the time. Before we come to Oliver... We should say, when we say miniature, we mean really miniature. I mean, this is, what, three centimetres across? Something yeah, like that? maybe three and a half. I mean, <laughs> it really is tiny, yes. So, tell us about Isaac. Well, Isaac Oliver presents himself in this self-portrait in a very different kind of way. There's no inscription around it. Um, it's a slightly bigger format, so where Hilliard just shows his head and shoulders, Oliver shows himself to the waist with his hand on his hip. Um, it's Although it's got a blue background like the Hilliard, a plain blue background, so there's no sense of space, Oliver models with much more uh, shadowing than Hilliard does. So he creates a more three-dimensional image, in a way, um, than Hilliard does. It becomes a, a more three-dimensional object, in a sense. I mean, he... he and there's more focus on Oliver as an individual. Um, there's a tendency, and I think if you look around the exhibition, to to focus, for Oliver to focus more on the face, more on the, on the sort of psychological presence, if you like, of the individual, and Hilliard on the sort of elegant uh, costume and, and shapes and so on. Um, I mean, at the same time, it's producing very recognisable, I'm sure, portraits of individuals. Now, now, they were watercolours. They were, they were painted on vellum, is that right? Yes, that's right. And actually, the word miniature derives not from the size, from the prefix min, for meaning small, um, but from the technique of painting on vellum. So actually it derives from a Latin word miniare, which meant to illuminate in red lead paint, which was the basis of manuscript illumination technique. And so I think it's really important to engage with 
the material aspect of miniature paintings, what they actually are physically, because that name, miniature, comes from that material quality of them. Um, at the time, they weren't, in fact, called miniatures. They were called limnings, and the artists were called limners. Uh, were, they, were they also known as pictures in little? They were referred to in that way, and I think the size is important because that's part of how they were used. They were exchanged, they were held, they were worn. Um, they could be used in a more personal way than an oil painting that you had to hold on the wall. So the smallness is important. But in a sense, these would be great masterpieces, whatever size they were. Um, and the technique is the thing that, that ties them together. And you'll see we've got some slightly larger miniatures in the exhibition as well, not so miniature miniatures. <laughs> now, we're looking at one of the most famous sitters in this, in this exhibition. is Elizabeth I of England. Uh, tell us about this portrait. Well, this is a miniature by Hilliard of Elizabeth I. It's the earliest surviving miniature by Hilliard of the Queen, and it was painted in 1572, which is only one year into Hilliard's known career as a miniature painter. His earliest surviving miniature is from 1571. So it's amazing that he got patronage from the very top level right at the start. We also think that he produced a miniature a year before this, which no longer survives. But this is the earliest... Um, surviving miniature of the Queen. Uh, and it's a really beautiful object. It shows her looking relatively young um, with a really intricate and wonderful dress on. And actually, when you magnify it, you can see that over her embroidered sleeves, there's a kind of gauze material that he paints very delicately um, over the embroidery and wonderful um, depictions of her jewels and lace. How does he achieve that level of detail? Because I'm trying to picture what kind of brush, what, t- what kind of object you'd need to well, get that level. he describes uh, in his treatise, and then other artists who wrote afterwards talking about Hilliard's technique, describe uh, how he painted the miniatures. And we know he used a squirrel hair brush, um, and we think it was a fairly stubby, short brush, but, but with a very fine point. I think also that looking at these miniatures, when you look at them under magnification, there's so much more detail that comes out under magnification that they must have used some form of magnification to paint them, but they never talk about that. I guess that was a kind of trade secret, but it it, it just must have been used. I mean, for example, when you look at the irises of the eyes, I mean, the tiny, you know, the eyes are a little bit bigger than a head of a pin, but when they're magnified, you can see different flecks of colour in the iris, tiny little highlights. I mean, they're, they're astonishing, really. They're miraculous, almost. They, they? they almost are, yes. Um, and, and we know that, that Hilliard and Elizabeth had an uh, enlightening conversation about, about, about art. Yes. Well, Hilliard writes in his treaties about uh, when he first met the Queen. And it's a very... It's quite amusing conversation because he basically says... Um, you know, I had this conversation with the Queen when I first met her and she told me a lot of very interesting things that I really learned a lot from about art and how to go about painting a portrait. Uh, and the Queen's, the, the, the sort of thrust of their conversation is that uh, there should be very little in the way of shadowing in portraits, that shadows sort of mar portraits and that actually you wanted kind of full light. Um, and for this reason, Hilliard says, she... Uh, chose her place to sit, and I'm quoting, chose her place to sit for that purpose in the open alley of a goodly garden where no tree was near nor any shadow at all. So I'm sure she understood that it would be a bit more flattering if she had full light on her face when she was being painted. But that does seem to have been Hilliard's approach, to not shadow very much. Um, A lot of these portraits look as though they almost have 
no shadow in the face. That's, that's really to do with fading. They, they were originally modelled to some extent, but Hilliard didn't shadow in the way that Oliver did, and that was an aesthetic choice. Now, these artists didn't just depict the great aristocrats, the great and the good. They also depicted middle-class people, and we're looking at some of those now. Can you tell me more about these? Yes, I think in some ways these are some of the best portraits by Hilliard and Oliver. Um, There aren't huge numbers of portraits of middle-class people, and it can be difficult to tell who's middle-class and who isn't, because a lot of the identities of the sitters have got lost. But, of course, this was a time when the middle classes were growing in number and they were growing in wealth. And one of the things that was happening was that middle-class people who achieved status and wealth wanted to have some of the same kind of luxury products that aristocratic people, landowners and uh, courtiers had. Um, And miniatures came into that category. And in some cases, I mean, this is a really interesting miniature because we actually know who it's of. Very unusually, it's got the name of the sitter written on it. I don't think there's any other miniature uh, in which Hilliard himself actually wrote the name of the sitter. Can you speculate Uh, about why he would have done that? Well, I think this man who is called Leonard Darr um, was a very wealthy merchant from Devon, which is where Hilliard came from as well. Possibly they knew one another from their sort of home background. Um, Leonard Darr became an MP. He was only an MP for a year, but he, he achieved various kind of civic status in Devon as well. And I think uh, this must have been part of celebrating his own achievements, really. I mean, possibly, we don't know who commissioned the miniature. If he had it done himself, maybe he had it done to give to somebody whose patronage he wanted or who he wanted to sort of draw his attention to. Um, and so he had his name put on it. Um, I think it's, it's, there's certainly an element of pride in, in what he's achieved in life. Now, we're going to turn to this extraordinary portrait now, which features a figure surrounded by flames. What's going on here? Well, because miniatures were could be very personal objects, could be exchanged, could be could be hidden, concealed, uh, could be held in the hand. They became objects that were used in more intimate contexts than oil paintings. And I think we have to assume that this miniature was a kind of token probably produced for either a lover or a would-be lover. So what this man seems to be showing in his miniature, he's wearing a shirt, which was effectively underwear. It was what you wore under your clothes, uh, a linen shirt, open to the waist, revealing his chest. And around his neck, he's got a chain with a jewel on it. The jewel might itself be a locket with a miniature in, we don't know. But it's clearly significant because he's holding it. And that's kind of the focus. And behind him, the background, instead of Hilliard's usual plain blue background, is completely uh, a wall of flames. And Hilliard's um, enhanced the flames by putting powdered gold uh, all over them so that actually even... On the, on the displayed in the case as it is now, if you move, the flames almost seem to be flickering. And if you uh, hold it in your hand, this miniature, and move it, it looks like the flames are flickering because the gold catches the light and then moves away from the light as you're turning it. So it's got a wonderfully illusionistic quality. Um, but I think the message is clearly that he's burning with passion and he's probably saying to his lover, you know, have mercy on me and my 
frustrated burning passion probably but we we can only speculate um i mean it's it's certainly a miniature about love and coincidentally or possibly deliberately the playing card on which the miniature's mounted has a heart on the back how wonderful yes because we should explain that that, that that as well as they're on vellum but they're backed by playing cards that's right they playing cards were a readily available source of a fine stiff card which uh, the artists used to back the vellum to stop it from becoming floppy when they were painting. Um, and they had a plain white side, which is the side that got glued onto the vellum. Now, we've come to a, a, a miniature now which has no background after the background of flames. What, what are we looking at here? Well, what we're looking at is an unfinished miniature by Isaac Oliver. Um, Oliver's patronage started with middle-class people mainly, um, unlike Hilliard, where so Hilliard sort of soared into the aristocratic and, and royal patronage straight away. But Oliver s- seems to have started working for the middle classes. And then at this moment, um, in the 1590s, he got the patronage of the Earl of Essex, the Queen's late favourite. And he seems to have started working for Essex and his friends. And uh, this miniature is an unfinished miniature of the Earl of Southampton, who was a big political ally of Essex's at the time and is most famous as a patron of Shakespeare. And Southampton was a, um, a kind of young man about town at the court, um, as you can like, see. He looks, like, he looks like a rock star. I mean, he's, he's extraordinarily dashing, isn't he? He is very dashing, and I, I, I think, like some rock stars and other young men of this type, um, as well as being um, very self-confident and very stylish. He made some bad judgments, and he ended up in the Tower of London. Um, But uh, he was eventually released, luckily for him. Um, But here he's at the height of his fashion, and he's uh, got this amazing hairstyle with a sort of tufty bit at the front that stuck up with something or other I don't know what hair products were probably sugar sugar water uh, and hair that's short on one shortish on one side and very long on the other side coming over his shoulder there are other portraits of Southampton that show him with this hairstyle which he was clearly known for um, and represented the kind of extreme of, uh, of fashion at the time the, the unfinished quality of the miniature um, we think is to do with uh, the likelihood that this was kept by Oliver in his studio to make replicas from it. Um, Oliver did that with Southampton's friend Essex. He, he produced a very similar unfinished miniature and lots of replicas of Essex's miniature were made from that. Um, there aren't any other versions of Southampton's miniature so this is a really uh, wonderful um, thing to have. It, it sort of captures a particular moment just before Southampton fell from favour. So we've now moved on from the Tudors to the Stuarts, and we're looking at a big display case which is full of images of James I and his family. Yes, so miniature painting continued after Elizabeth's death in 1603. Of course, James VI of Scotland came to the throne as James I of England, and I'm sure that Hilliard and Oliver, like everybody else who worked uh, in and around the court, will have thought, what are we going to do now? Will we get this patronage? Oliver's relationship with Essex and his circle, in fact, stood him in quite good stead at this moment, because although they'd been disgraced under Elizabeth, James was actually quite supportive of Essex, and he freed Southampton from the tower, and he, uh, his wife, James's wife, Anne of Denmark, the Queen Consort, uh, seems to have taken up Oliver very quickly and appointed him her limner. Uh, Hilliard... Uh, continued to work for the monarch, for James. And I think 
that reflects the fact that James wasn't actually as interested in visual arts as Anne. So James was a very sort of literary-focused king, um, and he continued um, Hilliard's patronage in the way that Elizabeth had. He paid Hilliard the same salary that Elizabeth had paid him, and uh, he painted a sequence of miniatures of the king, which, although they show the king getting a bit older, are fairly repetitive. Oliver, on the other hand, painted a much more diverse series of portraits of the Queen. Um, And this is the moment, really, I think, when Oliver starts to overtake Hilliard in terms of popularity and in terms of showing the way forward. Does the Queen's patronage reflect that, as a woman of taste, she recognised that Isaac Oliver was the better artist or the more developed, more uh, progressive artist in some way? I think, well, I think the Queen's patronage reflects her greater awareness and interest in continental art. And Oliver, both Hilliard and Oliver were astonishingly good artists, but they were doing different things. What Hilliard did, I think, can be seen as, in a way, the kind of pinnacle of of the achievement of Elizabethan art. What Oliver was doing was beginning to show the way that art was going to go in the 17th century. Um, So he was reflecting more knowledge in a way than Hilliard and more interest in continental art developments. Some of Oliver's miniatures look like tiny works by Correggio or by Flemish Mannerists. Oliver was bringing in all sorts of, of continental influences into his art and I think that corresponded with Anne's interests more. She was more interested in continental art continental art generally and and she her family were in Denmark and her sisters were married to German princes and there was a lot of exchange of portraits James of course brought about peace with Spain in 1604 the year after he he uh, ascended the throne and that involved uh, a lot of exchange of portraits and we know that a number of those portraits that were exchanged in that context were miniatures and again it was about saying this is something we can do that really has value you may be able to produce great paintings in your country but we in England can do this and this is something nobody else can do and Oliver and Hilliard were both brought into that uh, exchange and you see that Oliver paints and uh, in some ways like Hilliard miniatures they're very decorative they've got lots of emphasis on her jewels on her costume Um, they have this wonderful sort of hand on the heart um, gesture which all of Anne's virtually all of Anne's miniatures by Oliver have, um, which I think is a sort of sign of the kind of heartfelt nature of miniature painting, the heartfelt uh, nature of the exchange that went on. And in fact, in this one here, you can see that she's wearing a miniature just below her hand on her dress. So there's a sort of interesting internal reference to another miniature. In, In this case that we're looking at, you've actually got a picture of the same sitter by Hilliard and by Oliver. Tell tell us what this tells us. Well, I think it's with the royal children that the real sort of head-to-head Hilliard-Oliver competition in a way is best illustrated because the three surviving children of James and Anne, Henry, Elizabeth and Charles, were all painted by both Hilliard and Oliver. And here we've got pairs of these portraits confronting one another, if you like. The comparison between the two portraits of Henry... Um, is particularly telling in Oliver's favour, partly because he chose to paint Henry on a much larger scale than Hilliard, and so this miniature has a big impact. But you can also see that although in some ways they approach the prince in the same way, they both show him in very 
elaborate decorative armor. They both show him with a red curtain behind. Um, Oliver includes a scene in the background which gives the miniature a much more sense of space, which gives the prince a sense of being in a real place, however fanciful that place actually was, whereas Hilliard's miniature seems to push the prince almost forwards out of the frame. Um, Oliver's miniature look, is more like a window looking into um, a space. And because the prince's head is so much larger, you get a, a much better sense of him as a, as a real person. Now, we focused on the portraits, but actually all around us are very different kinds of work. In fact, there are some landscapes in the show, so tell us a bit about these. Well, these are really also portraits as well, but portraits in a landscape. These portraits are of men sort of leaning listlessly or lying in landscapes, and they're really about the fashionable complaint of melancholy. It seems strange that there should be a fashionable complaint, (laughs) but so there was, and that was associated with... Um, melancholy was associated with not just sadness, as we might associate it today, but also with intellectual effort, with obviously with disappointed love, um, with philosophical thought. Um, but they must have agreed and indeed wanted to be portrayed in this way. Well, exactly. I mean, I think these are the sorts of paintings that you had done of yourself, um, in all likelihood in order to communicate something about yourself to other people. These are also larger miniatures, and so they couldn't be worn like the others. So they did have a slightly more public presence than the kind that you could close up in a locket. Um, And at this time, it was becoming fashionable to have small cabinet rooms in your house, which were rooms where you could display really precious small objects, and you might put a miniature of yourself in that room in one of these kind of slightly sad, thoughtful, intellectual poses showing what uh, a wonderful kind of thoughtful patron you were. Catherine, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Elizabethan Treasures is at the National Portrait Gallery in London until the 19th of May. And that's all for this week. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly print edition of the art newspaper, you can do so at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. The producers of the Art Newspaper Podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Anthony and Catherine, and thank you for listening. Those of you who stayed to the end of last week's podcast might well have heard me mention Rembrandt. Well, we decided to do a Rembrandt special, and that in fact will be next week, so do join us for that. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.